Hi guys, welcome back to the No Such Thing as TMI podcast. I have been trying to put out a podcast episode once a month this year, and I missed August. August truly came and went, so I'm very sorry there was no August podcast, but for this month, the month of September, the topic is Botox for the pelvic floor. So I get asked all the time about Botox, how it even works, where it's done, where it's injected, who is even a candidate for Botox, um, you know, how does this compare to trigger point injections? Because Botox is definitely different than trigger point injections. And what does the research say? What are the side effects? How does this work long term? And how does this work in combination with physical therapy? So we're going to really unpack all of that today. I'm hoping for a shorter podcast episode. I'm trying to keep it under 30 minutes because I think people really like that. That's the feedback that I've gotten. So let's get into Botox for the pelvic floor. I am really excited to talk about this and I really hope that this brings you a lot of clarity around the subject so that you are able to take this information, jot it down, take what you need from this episode and bring this information to your providers so that you can say, hey, I think this is a good idea for me and this is why. Hey, I understand this is how this works. I think that this is the next step for me or just going in educated and informed about it so that you don't just sit there with your provider and they're telling you what you need to do for your health. Because at the end of the day, you are in charge of your health, you are in charge of the decisions that you make around your body, and you wanna make sure that when you're making these decisions, you are coming from an empowered place where you're like, yeah, that's the right next step for me. So let's first kick off the podcast with where Botox is even done in the pelvic floor. So technically, Botox injections can be done in the superficial layer. So external anal sphincter, um, superficial transverse perineal, bulbospongiosis, ischiocavernosis, and even at the vestibule. So if none of those muscles made any sense to you visually, I totally understand. Just look up a picture on Google of the pelvic floor muscles and you'll be able to point some of those muscles out. But the superficial layer is the superficial layer. It's usually what you can see, what we can feel internally just at the first knuckle. That's usually that superficial layer of the pelvic floor. So Botox injections can be done here. It's just not as common. What is very common is Botox, Botox injections done at the deeper layer. So this is typically levator ani group, obturator internus, coccygeus, piriformis muscles, those probably sound a little bit more familiar. Those are what really makes up the bowl of the pelvic floor. Now let's talk a little bit about Botox and how it even works. So the way Botox works is it blocks certain chemical signals from the nerves heading to those muscles, telling those muscles to contract. So the idea here is that it's going to reduce compression of neurovascular structures, help with peripheral and central sensitization, and restrict the release of certain neurotransmitters related to pain perception. So the idea here is that we want to calm that signal down so the muscle isn't over-contracting, so it's not developing a trigger point, and so that your brain doesn't register it as this super hot pain point. Furthermore, when Botox is injected to a hot muscle, hyperactive muscle, there's a paresis effect, which can actually reduce the diameter of that muscle. So oftentimes when someone's having hypertonic symptoms, hyperactive muscle symptoms, right? They're having a very tense pelvic floor, feels chronically clenched. What can happen is that muscle can become hypertrophic. So basically what that means is it just becomes bulky. 
it becomes bulky, it's short, it's taut, it's tight. And what Botox can do is it can actually normalize the size of the muscle. Now, how is Botox injected? So as I said, typically speaking, the pelvic floor muscles that are injected are the levator ani group, the coccygeus, and the obturator internus. The most me common methods that are seen are a transvaginal approach, transperineal approach, and a transgluteal approach to the obturator internus. I think usually, from my understanding, it's typically a transvaginal approach, and how a practitioner will inject the Botox is either a fixed injection pattern aimed at each muscle group on either one or both sides of the pelvic floor, or they'll identify certain injection sites based on their digital palpation. So based on their pelvic exam with their finger, they're going to find those areas of spasm or hyperactive muscles, and they're going to put that injection right there. Some practitioners will just use digital guidance alone, so like their finger where they feel the spasm and inject it there. Others will use guidance with electromyography, electrical stimulation, 4D ultrasound, um, fluoroscopy, and CT. So there is a wide variance on how it's administered with regard to anesthesia. So some people will do no anesthesia, some people will do conscious sedation, and others will do general anesthesia. But in my clinical experience, usually patients are getting options based on their comfort, which is fabulous. Now, when the Botox is injected, it's typically diluted in a saline solution, but some practitioners will dilute it with an anesthetic. And as far as dosage goes, typically the dose is, is between 20 and 450 units, but 20 to 40 units is typically not strong enough. And most research, most studies are between 100 to 200 units. A big question I get is how long do the effects last? So what research shows is that the onset of effects is usually around 10 to 14 days, with some cases even being as soon as three to five days. The total duration for the effects of Botox is usually 10 to 16 weeks, but some studies report even up to six months. So very dependent on the person, very dependent on their situation. There's a lot of things I can say here, right? Like, is this person doing a combination of Botox and pelvic floor therapy? Are they just doing Botox alone? Do they have a pretty high stress, high anxiety life where their stress and anxiety is unmanaged, right? Do they have other things going on like low back pain, hip pain? Do they have TMJ dysfunction? So there's a lot of things we have to consider with the onset of effects and the total duration of effects. So that's why with some cases, Botox can work really, really well. And with other cases, it may not have the same effect. I think a really big fear around Botox is that there can be crazy side effects, like you're going to lose complete control of your bladder and pee your pants or lose complete control of your bowels and poop your pants. And that's just really not true. So the side effects of Botox are that there can be some soreness a day or two after, but usually it's not too bad. Um, adverse effects appear to be reversible as the efficacy reduces with time. And the only time there really seems to be worsening of a symptom is when there's a pre-existing condition. So studies have shown that if someone's experiencing constipation, 28.6% of those will continue to experience maybe worse constipation after Botox. 
um, people that experience stress urinary incontinence before Botox, 4.8% of those people experienced a worsening of stress incontinence after Botox. And same stat for fecal incontinence. 4.8% of people that had fecal incontinence prior to Botox had worsening of their fecal incontinence after Botox. And 4.8% of people had a new onset of stress urinary incontinence. So had no urinary incontinence prior, and then almost 5% did experience some urinary incontinence. But again, there's a lot of questions here. Where were their pelvic floor muscles at before Botox? What's their strength, their endurance, their coordination? Like these are still things that we have to check even when someone has tight pelvic floor muscles. You know, how active are they? How tight is the rest of their body? How mobile are they? What does their lifestyle look like? Their diet, their exercise? You know, there's a lot of questions that need to be asked here. So the summary around the side effects is that it's extremely patient dependent. I will say that I have actually never had any patients have negative side effects to Botox where they start experiencing more leakage or have more severe constipation. So that's my clinical experience. I have seen, however, a reduced therapeutic effect. So in the literature, it does show that there can be a formation of antibodies against Botox, which can make the duration and the therapeutic effect of Botox reduced. So it may work the first time for someone, but the next time they go, it may not be as effective anymore. Okay, now let's go on to research studies. Most of the studies on Botox are small participant studies and there's not a ton of controls. So there are a lot of what ifs here, but I will let you know the name of the author and the year it was done so that you can look it up if you want to. So Morrissey D. et al. 2015 did a six month prospective pilot study with 28 women and there was EMG guided Botox injections for chronic pelvic pain. At four weeks, 61.9% reported improvement, 80.9% improved at eight weeks, 12 weeks, and 24 weeks compared to baseline scores. And those that had pain with sex, 58.8% had fewer symptoms at four weeks. By 12 weeks, this increased to 80% and 83% at 24 weeks post-injections. There was no control in the study, and the conclusion was that if all therapies alone do not seem effective, such as pelvic floor therapy or oral medications, Botox could be a beneficial treatment option. So that was Morrissey D. et al. Now, another study by Nesbitt and Hayes, Howes, H-A-W-E-S at all 2013, did a prospective study with no control on 37 women. 100 units of Botox was injected into the puborectalis and pubococcygeus muscle. And their conclusion was that single and repeated injections showed statistically significant reduction in dyspareunia, which means that's the medical term for pain with sex, by their VAS scores, which VAS is the visual analog scale, and that's essentially a subjective outcome measure, how someone's going to interpret it, interpret their own pain. So it seems like before the study was done, they rated their pain, let's say, for example, 8 out of 10, and then after the study was done, they rated it a 4 out of 10. I don't know actually what they rated it, but because um, I didn't write that down. I don't even know if they provided that information. Otherwise, I feel like I would have written it down, but feel free to look that study up. It was Nesbitt and how is at all in 2013. 
So another study, I have two more studies that I'm sharing, two randomized control style uh, trials. So one RCT, double blind, 80 patients. They got Botox with a local anesthetic versus a local anesthetic alone. So there was no statistic significance between the two groups. And they came to the conclusion that the injection of the anesthetic alone was as sufficient as Botox. And the researcher was Levesque et al. in 2021. So recent. Another randomized controlled trial, again, double blind, 59 women with myofascial pelvic pain. They got 200 units of Botox or 20 milliliters of saline. So saline was the, I guess, placebo in this case. And they found that there was no significant difference between intervention and placebo at two, four, and 12 weeks. Botox injections were not more effective than saline. There were some improvements with Botox versus the placebo, but it wasn't statistically significant. So this was Desi et al. in 2019. So as you can see, the literature is a bit mixed, but I will say clinically, I have had great experiences with Botox. So for the most part, my patients have had a very positive experience. Few have had the situation where maybe Botox wore off quickly or the more times they got it, the lesser duration of therapeutic effect, which makes sense in accordance with the literature. But generally speaking, I am a fan of Botox with combined pelvic floor therapy. I'm actually not a fan of pel- of Botox without pelvic floor therapy because then I miss I think we're missing a big piece of the puzzle and I think we're actually doing a disservice to the patient if a pelvic floor therapist isn't involved, especially if it's a chronic pelvic pain condition. Now, let's just quickly talk about who is even a candidate for Botox because this is very important information. So, someone is a candidate for Botox technically if they have any symptoms of pelvic pain or vaginal pain that's associated with pelvic floor muscle overactivity. Pelvic floor muscle overactivity is going to be determined by a digital exam, either by a gynecologist or a pelvic floor therapist. Hopefully this gynecologist is specializing in the pelvic floor and pelvic pain, but typically a pelvic floor therapist is going to have a more comprehensive pelvic floor muscle exam compared to your typical gynecologist that you go through, you go to for your pap smear. You know what I mean? But What research shows is that inclusion criteria for Botox injections means that on a digital exam, they find trigger point injections, tender spots, they may reveal taut or tight bands and the feeling of spasm. And some practitioners will even use ultrasound or electromyography, but this has its limitations. So not really going to get into that much. Also, inclusion criteria is if someone is unresponsive to previous treatments like multiple pain medications, intensive pelvic floor therapy, prior prior neuromodulation. Um, but I will say that we have to also ask what does intensive pelvic floor therapy mean because not all pelvic floor therapists treat the same. So I've had patients that come to me with chronic pelvic pain and they've said, yeah, I worked with a different pelvic floor therapist and what we did were stretches and some breathing and we did biofeedback and that's it. And that's not enough. There needs to be there needs to be internal manual therapy. There really does. There needs to be dilator training. There needs to be pelvic wand work because in this in this in the situation where there's chronic pelvic pain and 
chronic pelvic floor hypertonicity. And let's say start off, you don't want to do internal, you want to start off with stretches, breath work, meditation, you know, I'm all for that stuff. But if it's not getting better, we have to do some internal work here. So when I say, what does intensive pelvic floor therapy mean? That's pretty important because maybe not all the things were tried. There's no research on Botox injections in combination with pelvic floor therapy, but what we see anecdotally is that therapists report patients have decreased muscle spasm, they have the ability to use wands and dilators more easily, and they tolerate internal manual therapy better. But again, there's no studies to prove this. This is just what other therapists report and truly what I have seen in the clinic as well. One thing I also wanted to mention was that if you do decide to get Botox, maybe you're wondering how quickly can I return to doing dilating or going to back to my pelvic floor therapist. And what most physicians recommend is waiting seven to 10 days after Botox to continue treatment. But I will say too, is that there is no specific protocol with pelvic floor therapy and Botox injections out there. So there's not, there's no specific protocol that exists. Now that we've talked about Botox pretty extensively, I want to talk about trigger point injections now. So the main difference between Botox and trigger point injections, actually there's a few differences. One, trigger point injections are also indicated for patients that have pelvic floor overactivity, specifically myofascial spasms with tender trigger points. So if you don't know what a trigger point is, I feel like I'm saying trigger point a million times, it they're known as tiny myofascial knots. They're just like knots that can form in the muscles and in the fascia of the body, and they can be super tense and super painful. So trigger point injections go right into this area and help break the pain cycle by one, reducing inflammation, two, relaxing the muscles, and three, interrupting the pain signals from the trigger points to the brain. So it's a very targeted delivery of medication, typically a local anesthetic like lidocaine and a corticosteroid to the trigger point to allow for precise pain relief and promote restoration of that muscle's function. Now let's talk about how a trigger point injection is administered. So some practitioners will do a non-invasive ultrasound guided external approach. What that means is that they're not gonna go in vaginally, they're gonna go in externally. So they're gonna expose the skin, they're gonna put the ultrasound over the skin, identify the muscle that they want to target, and then inject the needle through the skin into the muscle directly. Other practitioners will go transvaginally and go through the vagina to reach the pelvic floor. So it really depends on your practitioner, what their preference is, and yeah, you just have to figure out what they like to do and why they like to do it that way. There's no, from my understanding, there's no better one way or the other. It's just practitioner preference. I have actually shadowed a physiatrist, so a pelvic pain doctor, in Coral Gables, Miami, and they did they did the non-invasive ultrasound guided external approach, and that was really, really cool to watch. So they numbed up the area, saw the ultrasound come out. I could see the muscle. It was super cool. I could see the muscle, and then she injected the injection from there, So and it was super, super quick. So like I said, the injection is administered directly into the trigger point of the muscle, and the purpose of this is so that it provides an immediate spasm trigger point release. 
This is to increase blood flow, increase oxygenation to the muscle, relax the muscle, reduce inflammation, and reduce pain. According to the literature, relief is typically felt within 24 to 72 hours, but studies also show trigger point injection, injections lasting up to three months. The frequency of someone needing TPIs, trigger point injections, depend on the patient. The good thing about TPIs are that it is FDA approved, so it can be covered by your insurance depending on obviously the provider administering them. Do they have a cash-based practice? Do, are they in, you know, are they do they work with your insurance company? There's a lot of things that you have to check on with that. But that's a pro versus Botox is that TPIs are FDA approved for the pelvic floor, whereas Botox is not FDA approved. So now let's go through some of the research about trigger point injections. So one study, FOAD, F-O-U-A-D et al. in 2017, conducted a study with 68 women that got trigger point injections. 65% of them had an improvement in their visual analog scale score, which is the subjective measure, as I mentioned, just kind of being like, how happy are you feeling with your pain? Very subjective. So 65% of them had an improvement in their pain. 25% of them needed repeat injections. But interestingly, there was no difference in their visual analog score between one injection versus repeat injections. So seems like they had the same outcome. The majority did not need a repeat injection. And those who did had an average pain relief for 2.2 months between injections. Another study with Langford et al, they found 13 out of 18 patients with chronic pelvic pain and palpable levator anti muscle trigger points reported pain relief three months after one trigger point injection. 33% of patients reported complete pain relief after three months. So that's pretty impressive. And then the last study I wanted to talk about was Zurob et al. Z-O-O-R-O-B et al. was a randomized controlled trial of 29 pelvic floor myofascial trigger point patients. 17 were receiving physical therapy twice a week for six weeks. 12 were, were receiving levator anti-trigger point injections with a specific concoction, trimicnolone, 2% lidocaine, and bubicaine once a week for six weeks. The pain was assessed one month after completion. Both therapies, so both the group of physical therapy and the group of trigger point injections, improved Im- reported improved sexual function and a reduction in sexual pain. However, sexual pain reduction favored physical therapy. So it seems like the group that had physical therapy had a, a more significant reduction in sexual pain than the trigger point injection group. But the time that they felt the pain, so the group that got the trigger point injections reported less pain quicker in 4.4 weeks, whereas the group that got the 12 physical therapy sessions reported less pain in 7.3 weeks. So that's interesting, and I'm curious. I mean, I wonder how it would have been if they did a study on, they did another group that had combined, right? Combined trigger point injections and pelvic floor therapy because... I know anecdotally what we see in the clinic is that patients that do trigger point injections or Botox for that matter, as I mentioned, in combination with pelvic floor therapy, usually have the most optimal outcome. 
for a lot of reasons because there's a lot that we do in pelvic floor therapy. So now you've got a little rundown on Botox and trigger point injections and how they're different and how they're similar. So now I'm curious what you think about this episode. Did you learn something new? Did you, you know, did I repeat things that you already knew? Have you had Botox injections before, trigger point injections before? How was your experience? I'm going to leave a Q&A box below so that you can give me some insight of where you're at. And if there's any questions that I didn't cover, please ask them because I will absolutely make a post about them or talk about them maybe in my newsletter or on another podcast. I was actually thinking of having, I know a couple of physiatrists and pelvic pain doctors, pelvic floor pain doctors around me. And I was thinking about bringing one of them on to the podcast. So if you have any specific questions, I'll do a Q&A box in, on Instagram as well. Let me know so I can ask them when we do a podcast together because I think they're going to say yes. But I hope you liked this episode. I hope that you found it helpful and educational. And I guess to really summarize, I am a big fan of Botox and trigger point injections. I think it depends a lot on a patient's past medical history, um, depends a lot on their presentation, of course, on their lifestyle. Like there's a lot of things that we have to consider, which is why it's a conversation between, you know, the patient, pelvic floor therapist's findings, pelvic pain doctor's finding findings. It's really a collaborative approach as it should be. But I am a big fan of these, especially for those nagging chronic pelvic pain patients where, you know, their pain just will not go away. It can really, really be helpful in addition to intensive pelvic floor therapy work. If you liked this podcast episode, be sure to rate my podcast five stars, please. I actually think I'm a little bit low on my ratings because that one time I released a episode about how to masturbate with your clitoris and I guess at the time this was like in 2021 I guess people didn't like that so I got a low rating so I'm trying to get my rating up on my podcast so if you could rate it five stars I would really appreciate it make sure you sign up to my newsletter I'm going to leave the link in the description below and make sure you follow me on Instagram as well at Dr. Sabrina Baxter hope this was helpful again I hope you got some use out of this and very excited for the next episode to be determined what it's going to be about but that's the beauty about putting out podcast episodes once a month because we'll see what the people want and we'll put out what is needed hope you guys have a great rest of your day and talk soon